Welcome to the Joy of Home Cheesemaking podcast. Join us as we delve into the fun and science behind home cheesemaking. Welcome back to the Home Cheesemaking Podcast. I am David Bleckman. With me today is Debbie Driscoll, who's just got back from a very exciting vacation. Say hi, Debbie. Hello. It's great to have you back. It's been quite a while since we've had a podcast, hasn't it? True, yeah. It's great to be back. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited. Life life gets in the way of doing fun things like this, but uh, you just had a great trip, and it's another good reason to get together and talk about cheese. Absolutely. It was a really excellent trip. Yeah. All right. We'll get right to that after this break. So here we are. We're going to talk to Debbie about her trip to Italy, where she got to visit some cheesemakers and make some cheap milk cheese. So Debbie, how did you get into this? How did you get connected with this this trip to uh, Italy? And tell us more about the setup. Sure. I don't know exactly why I chose Italy and why I decided I had to go to Italy to make cheese, but my sabbatical for my job was coming up, and I decided that um, that that's what I wanted to do for my sabbatical. So I didn't know how I was going to get in touch with a cheesemaker, but I had full confidence that, that by networking I'd be able to figure something out. And what wound up working out uh, was somebody recommended to me uh, Help Exchange and also Woof. And both of them are lists of farms that are willing to accept volunteers in countries all around the world. And I wound up finding the best list through WOOF, which stands for uh, Worldwide Opportunities in Organic Farming, www.woof.org. Cool. Okay, cool. And what was the other? Is there a website for the other? The other one is helpx.org or .com. I think it's helpx.org. but uh, woof had woof.org had a better list, and the only drawback to woof is that you pay a membership fee per country to get the list of farms. Oh, interesting. So you can't just say, I want to go to Europe, and I don't know which country yet, and I'm going to look through the, the list. So you, have to, you either have to buy a list for each country or choose a country first. And Help Exchange, you, you just buy a membership to the worldwide organization. But looking at their sample list, it didn't seem like they had quite as many cheesemakers. Um, so I went with the woof lift list. And once I got to Italy, I realized that woofing um, was a really big deal, especially with the different agroturismos, which are like bed and breakfast, like working farm bed and breakfasts there. They call them agroturismos. Hmm. Um, and it's these working farms where you can stay and eat there sometimes. Um, and they often host woofers uh, like me. So people who are volunteering to be on the farm in exchange for, uh, for room and board. Uh, and so the... So through the WOOF program, I wrote to several different cheesemakers in Italy and wound up being accepted by this one that um, makes sheep milk cheese in Tuscany in a little town called Radacandoli, uh, about probably about 60 kilometers outside of Siena to the west of Siena. Okay. And they were just a wonderful family. I lucked out big time. And even the guests of their agroturismo, when we would be eating breakfast together, they would tell me, oh, my gosh, you really lucked out. Not everybody cooks this well and has this good <laughs> cheese. 
um, because the mother of the family, the, so the, the family I was staying with, the parents were Giovanna and Giovanni, and even the Italians thought that was funny to have a Giovanna and Giovanni mm-hmm. married to each other. And then they had two daughters. And um, Giovanna was an amazing cook. So in addition to the cheese making that I learned from Giovanna and Giovanni, I was also learning about Tuscan cooking from Giovanna. Yeah, which is very interesting. You got to bring some of that home with you. That yes, was, that was <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. In addition to the cheese making recipes, he brought home a lot of Tuscan Tuscan yes. recipes. Yes, yeah. yes, which very was awesome. great. So that's how I learned about about the uh, this this particular farm in Italy. So, how hard do they work you? Well, I think it varies per farm, and this was one where they would just take on one or two woofers at a time. Um, And so it was just kind of whatever work needed to get done. Like my first day, I had to go water the plants. And then the next day, I was plucking dead heads off of geraniums. Um, And (laughs) this was not an insignificant job. They had like probably 50 geranium plants, um, and they were huge. So. Um, was that just part of their garden, or were they selling the flowers? No, that was, was just part. That was just their garden. They had potted plants all over the place. It was a lovely property, mm-hmm. um, and so I would help with the dishes and and so a lot of cleaning and and then whenever they were making cheese, I'd be you'd be there right there. And how often? How much time was spent making cheese? Well, in other seasons, they make cheese every single day, but. Um, this was the very end of the cheesemaking season all across Italy for the sheep milk cheesemakers. What um, time of year was this? Was so I was there in mid-September, okay. and most of the places I wrote to actually said that I could come and volunteer, but I couldn't actually make be making cheese because their sheep were not producing milk right. anymore. And so at this farm, they were making sheep milk cheese till the bitter end. Um, and so... <laughs> The properties of the milk were actually changing a bit, um, and they were having to wait a lot longer for it to rent it. Um, it was just ha- a lot harder for it to coagulate um, because it was this late... Late lactation late, cycle. Exactly. Period. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. So I joined them when I could. I didn't. I was there for 10 days, and I was able to make cheese with them three times. Okay. Which was, I would have liked more, of course, but it was still really a good experience. And each time I made cheese with them, I got to do a little bit more so that the last time I made cheese with them, I actually got to do hands-on each step of the cheese making, which was good. Yeah, exciting. And so... um what kind of cheeses were you making? They're all sheep milk, obviously. All sheep milk. And in Italian, sheep milk cheeses are called pecorino. So we have in our lexicon here that pecorino is usually an aged, gradable type of cheese. But mm-hmm. really, any type of sheep milk cheese uh, from Italy is called pecorino. The word Similar for- to like chev means yeah. goat cheese. And exactly. So in France, chev be a, a hard, hard cheese. Yeah. Whereas we just think of it as soft cheese. Fresh That's exactly yeah. it. So, um, so they made about a dozen different types of pecorino cheeses, and most of them, well, none of them were at all like what we get here in the U.S. None of them. They did for themselves age a few to the point where they were gradable, but almost everything that they sold was less than six months old, which is half the age of the pecorino we typically buy here. Mm-hmm. So, they had a variety of cheeses that used very similar recipe and would be they would sell it at different ages so there was this basic recipe they would use none of they i don't think any of their cheeses they 
pressed like with you know like any sort of pressing machine any pressing they did was only with their hands and so they had these uh this one basic recipe and if it was under 10 years 10 days old um before it had developed any sort of skin it was called pecorino fresco bianco which just means fresh white no skin at all and then after 10 days old and up to about 30 days to 45 days, it would be uh, Pecorino Fresco Abucciato. Um And that just has a little bit of a skin to it. And both of those were aged at a kind of cooler temperature. But then the aged cheeses, they aged at a slightly higher temperature, same exact recipe, um, just a slightly higher aging temperature. And they would make semi-stagionata, which is semi-aged, and stagionata, which is aged. So the semi-stagionata was about three months to four months. From, okay. And then the stagionata was more than four months, okay. usually. Okay. Yeah. What um, so what was their aging environment like? Well, they had, I mean, it was this fairly rustic-looking place in Tuscany, but they had a fairly modern uh, cheese factory there yeah. um, on site. And the, Giovanna and Giovanni were the only cheesemakers there, but they had um, uh, for their aging, they had two walk-in refrigerators that had been built in place. Uh, and one they kept at about 8 degrees C, and the other one was kept at 14 to 16 degrees C. Cool. I can't do the math in my head, but that's like around 45 and 55. Is that? I think maybe? so. Yeah, oh. I know. I haven't... I. It's hard for me to translate now because I learned everything there in right. Celsius. And so I'm just now getting to the point where I'm starting to try a lot of the recipes here and I'm translating the temperatures right. and I'm still not great at it. Well, but 8 degrees C is pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for fresh. Yeah. So it's not going to, it'll it'll be a little much milder. Yeah. Flavor. Exactly. So yeah. those are for the fresh cheeses and right. ricotta salata. Right. Yep. Right. Cool. And, um, and then I, I just mentioned their their cheese factory um the only equipment that they had in their cheese factory um they had a a big jacketed vat with an agitation uh paddle um and that was their main that was their main piece of equipment everything else was draining boards um they had a steam generator for for heating the the steam jacketed vat as well as their draining board um, and then they had a lot of molds um, and a sink and some carts that so that they could move the cheeses in between the refrigeration and the main room. But that's really it. They had a pump, too, a pump for pumping the milk right. and pumping the whey in, you know, after it was done. What was the... Um what was the sanitation like there? I, I, as, as, I mean, I've had this impression from my, the classes I've taken in at OSU that sanitation is very important here. The FDA is very cracks down. What, yeah. what, what are regulations like? And what is what well, are, they are, also have um, inspectors come all the time, and they're getting their milk tested really okay. often. You know, at least a couple of times a month, or maybe I think he said four times a month. They're getting their milk tested, um, and then they have inspectors come and check out the whole place. I still, I still wonder. I, I think our sanitation practices here might be a little bit different. The main, I, there was always a, a a lot of cleaning, but mainly just with water, not with uh-huh. any sanit sanitization. 
the main thing they would do is soak their molds and anything that had gotten milk fat on it in uh, soda caustica, um, which caustic is caustic soda. Caustic soda, yeah. Wait, I, I think that's lye. Well, it, I think that's lye. I think it might it's be like sodium hydroxide. Yeah, it would, could very well be. Yeah. Once so, again, only learn the Italian word. And don't, <laughs> don't know. Hadn't heard of it in the U.S. before I went to Italy. Um, so soda caustica, they had a couple of big big vats of that and. They would just soak stuff in that, and then everything was rinsed with water. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I bet the was the water uh, like city provided, or was it well watered? You... Probably well water. Yeah. I don't think they were they weren't close enough to the town to be connected. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So well, I'm pretty I, sure they had well water, and they make great cheese. So I think that's yeah. I, mean, I think we're a little bit more stringent here than mm-hmm. I than think we need so. To be. I mean, we still had to have the proper attire and everything, right. but there was not any. There were no sanitization solutions that I saw being applied to anything ever <laughs> in this place. Um, in the in the next factory I went to, there there were, but in this place, not so much. It was just everything was very well cleaned with water, right. but only water typically. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah, and then sometimes to remove some of the fat, they would uh, get kind of an acid etching thing that they would um, they would use a little bit of, but I don't remember much else so caustic soda i know one of the hints i've heard from um, a local cheesemaker teacher is that uh, in order to get the curds to release from your cheesecloth soak it in a um a warm solution of dishwashing liquid and uh baking soda mm. and the alkalinity of the baking soda um causes the the, the uh, curds to release to dissolve basically the, mm-hmm. the proteins let go again um, that could be it. And that that's might like, be why yeah, sodas. That's an interesting idea. I, I don't know. Yeah. But, it does. It would make the curds just release right yeah. out of uh, the the molds. Cool. So that was interesting. Yeah. Talk, this is the place that had that teardrop drop mold, right? Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. That. So Giovanna and Giovanni were both originally from Sardinia. And they brought over their flock of uh, Sardinian milk sheep from there. Um Yet they've been in Tuscany for about 20 years now. So they had Sardinian milk sheep, a flock of about 300 of them at this point. And they made both traditional Tuscan cheeses and traditional Sardinian cheeses. So there was one that I found to be very interesting that was made with a a wooden hoop. And um, it was the hoop was sort of a teardrop shape. It wasn't like perfectly round hoop. But right, uh, it was open. So it's like you got a big, a long stretch, a piece of flexible wood. Yeah, you like fold it. You could imagine folding itself over into into make right. a teardrop shape with that. Exactly. Then... Yeah, and then there was just a little piece of um, twine, really, that that mm-hmm. they you know secured the two ends together with, and then they would put the um, the curds. Similar recipe to to the stagionato I was talking about before, um, and all all the other cheeses that that I mentioned. So similar recipe as that. They would put the curds in, and as the curds would mat and and the whey would release, they would drop inside that hoop mold. And so instead of letting them continue to drop and drop and drop, they would tighten up the mold a little bit and keep tightening it. So they would keep raising the curds back up to the to the top the level of that hoop. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so that's how they would continue to drain and sort of press it as it as it would right. over the first several days um, as it was releasing. So it was whey. only. It was only uh, being pressed basically under its own weight, but it was also being pressed by the side as the side yeah, contracted. So. Exactly. And so the cheese wound up with this really beautiful teardrop shape. Right. Yeah. Right. That's very, it, it, it's very interesting. And uh, 
And I've never seen that cheese before. You brought some of that home. It was, I, I found all their cheeses to be have very similar flavor to them. Yeah. Um, just like slightly different. Slightly aging different aging. There was there were a couple that tasted very different. One called Rugoso uh, tasted extremely sheepy, um, mm-hmm. and this was Rugoso means wrinkled in Italian. So like like a person's skin, like an older person's skin or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the skin of the cheese was very wrinkled. It had all these little wrinkles in it, and. Um, uh, I don't remember the specifics of that particular recipe, but they did. Uh, it did taste very different. Um, mm-hmm. And then there was a decent amount of difference between the um, the fresco and then a stagionato. But then between the stag- the the aged cheeses, the um, uh, the the one that we just talked about that's made in a hoop, it's called fascere, mm-hmm. uh, and then the typical stagionato, and then they had another one called marzolino that was made with just milk from early summer, uh, and they all tasted pretty similar actually, to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but w- one of the really interesting things about this place is that they didn't use any starter cultures. I was going to um, ask about, yeah. ask you to talk about the starter cultures and the, or lack thereof. Yeah. So it wasn't just that they used the same starter culture for all of them. They just didn't use any starter culture for any, any of their cheeses. And then they would use rennet. Of course, um, they would use, uh, for some of their cheeses, a vegetarian rennet that came in a paste form. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, for others they would use, uh, no, the vegetarian rennet came in a liquid form. And then the, the animal rennet came in a paste form form and did they use the animal for their aged cheeses or was or was it was any rule to when they would use the vegetarian as far as i could tell not really i mean they there probably were but they did things so intuitively sometimes it was hard to To, get some of the details out of them because they just did it and there was like a a proper way to do this but then the rules could be bent in this other area and they knew it in their hearts but sometimes it was difficult to get that you you studied you you learned Italian like four weeks before you left yeah. this trip, right? And That's they didn't about speak it. any English, right? Exactly. Yeah so. yeah. so when I wanted to have really detailed conversations with them about the cheese, we would sit down at a computer and use Google Translate <laughs> um, and have a conversation like with like type type in my sentence on the computer, and then she would read it and type in her sentence, and I would read it. And <laughs> it was interesting. That's funny. That's really funny. So that's that's pretty interesting. So that that was um, while you were there. It's I seem to remember you uh, in your blog entries on this you, that you uh, you you found you hooked up with someone else who knew another uh, cheese place. You could- yeah, this was so lucky. So as I mentioned, uh, this farm was an agriturismo, so they would have guests from Italy and Germany and the U.S. and Canada everywhere. Um, it, in fact, people from those places while I was there uh, came and stayed. And there was one family in particular, an Italian family, uh, that was very well traveled. Just the the uh, the one man that stayed, especially a long time, uh, is a businessman and had traveled well throughout Italy quite a bit. And so I decided, oh well, he'll know where I should go next, and if I'm really interested in food and cheese and cheese making. So I told him about my interests, and he said, well, you know, I I. 
my sister-in-law has a factory on the other side of Italy. Would you like me to give her a call? I can I can have my wife call her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, oh, yeah, definitely. Sign me up for that. So, uh, so yes, in in a couple days, it was all arranged that I would go there. And I, I talked with the woman at the next factory briefly on the phone. Um, and she said, oh, yeah, I'll have a I have this apartment you could stay in if that sounds OK. And yeah, come on over. And that's really all I knew. So I didn't I had that's met awesome. this family and I was going over to this other tiny town. I guess it wasn't that tiny of a town, but not a huge town and not a town that anybody in the US seems to have ever heard of um on the other side of Italy. And what um, what city was it close to? Um well, it was Not- in the town of Yezi and it's near the larger town of Ancona. Okay. And uh not that I know I don't know my map of Italy very well. Yeah, yeah, and and this was a province that wasn't really covered in any of the guidebooks that I could find. <laughs> and so they they really weren't they weren't looking for for volunteers to show no. just that it worked out that way. That they exactly. Yeah. They were just willing to take this random American girl who had this strange fascination with cheese mm-hmm. into their home on like three days notice. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, it was just an incredible experience. So it was very nice to the family that I had met at the first place. Um, and then I, um, I took a all day long journey. Uh, it, t- it took me Let's see, one, two, three buses to get to Rome, and then I took the the train from Rome to Yezi, and uh, and one of the employees of the factory in Yezi uh, picked me up at the train station there. So this is quite a journey. Yeah, no kidding, but worth it. <laughs> oh, highly. Within 20 minutes of getting to this next factory, I got to witness a buffalo calf being born. Right, because this was all buffalo milk. Yeah, water it was, buffalo. Yeah. Well, they had 150 buffalo and 150 cows, approximately, mm-hmm. um, and a few different types of cows there. Um, and yeah, so they the farm uh, they grow all of their own feed on the land. Uh, so they had fields of corn and um, seed, different types of seeds and things. Like most of their major staples, they were able to grow themselves. Um, they had their own biofuel production. They had photovoltaics um, uh, and uh, solar water heating. So it was really interesting how they were able to provide for themselves there. And and yet it didn't seem like it, it seemed much more urban and modern than the previous place I'd been. So um, it must have been a little ways out of the city to have that much land. Um, was well, it a small it was, city or? It was a small city and it was about five kilometers outside of the city center. Okay. So really, I mean, it was an easy bike ride to get to the city center. Hmm, okay. Yeah. Um, so they had the whole farm on one side and then it was separated by a gate essentially from the whole cheese factory and store side. And they had about eight employees. So it was a bigger operation for sure than mm-hmm. the previous place. And um, they had a very nice store uh, where people could buy well-selected, slightly high-end goods for cooking. So all their pastas and wines, and they probably sold 25 different cheeses. Um, All that they made themselves? Yeah, they made all the cheeses themselves. And they also had a chef on staff that would make cookies and all sorts of fresh-baked breads every day. Wow, okay. So um, 
tell us about the cheeses that you were that they were making what you learned there about oh they made so many different types of cheeses but i'll talk about the cheeses that i had the opportunity to participate in making um Every day we would make a strachina, which is has the consistency of something between, well, I guess it's like uh, egg whites, uh, cooked egg whites maybe, um, and jello. Somewhere between like a, a soft jello and cooked egg whites is, mm. is what it was like. Just very jelly-like, um, kind of wobbly. Like, just like basically curdled or... Um coagulated milk yeah and pretty milk. much yeah so that was um so strachina we would um pretty much just curdle the milk put it into these nine inch by nine inch square molds um i say inches i was estimating all these things as yeah, i was yeah. there and um let it drain for you know maybe an hour and a half and then throw it into a brine for about a half hour and then slice it up into three so three chunks so it was Essentially, three inch by three inch by nine inch chunks, um, mm-hmm. and then wrap it up in a piece of paper, and that was ready to sell. So it was very. It sounds very gelatinous, very very moist. Yeah, and so what people would do is is mix it in with their pastas. Oh, so it's very light tasting. Um, with the sauce. Yeah. 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 Okay. Exactly. Huh. So just made a nice creamy kind flavor like to things. Kind of cheese, but even yeah. not as firm. I would guess. Yeah, not as firm, not as salty. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. Um, but it you know really interesting cheese. And then another that um, that I just made yesterday here, and it turned out about the same as it did there. It's called primo sale, and primo sale just means first salt in Italian. And I'm pretty sure it gets its name because uh, the process is similar. You just uh, curdle the milk, mm-hmm. and well, you add a starter, curdle, curdle the milk, and then uh, while the you cut the curds, but only in the vertical direction. Okay. Um, and so you cut them into uh, essentially big slabs, just two you... inch columns. Oh, but like one, somewhere between one inch and two inches uh, square columns. Right. Is, so you, is all you do. So you do, so if you're doing it at home, you would cut well, you know, cut one way um, and then mm-hmm. turn ninety degrees, cut the other way. Right, and, and, and that's then it. Not cut. Right. Yeah, and don't vertically. cut diagonally. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you cut that way and then wait five minutes or so. And then they would have this, they had this interesting tool. And I think it's used in France a lot too, where it was a, about an eight inch round metal plate. Um, it looks just like a regular plate, but it was just this thin stainless steel plate. Okay. And they would pull that from back to front through the curds. And that's how they would cut up the curds into approximately hazelnut sized pieces. Um, so, okay, so it's it's like a, a, a disc of metal? Of, yeah, and yeah, and they used it, it for a lot of different processes. But does yeah. it have a handle on it? No. Nope. Okay, so you just... No, you just hang on to the to the plate itself. And put it pushed down and, and then... And then pull it pull it through, yeah. Okay. Pull it toward you. And as, you, as you're doing that, cut the cut And the it columns. would cut the, Yeah, exactly. And so you just kind of reach it all the way down to the bottom of, of the bucket and pull mm-hmm. it through and, and do it again. Um, until you wound up with approximately like average uh, right. hazelnut size curds, and then for primo sale, you would add you would let it rest for just a minute and let the curds drop a little bit in the way, and then ha- by hand stir in uh, some salt. Okay. And then you would pour it into the molds, and then that was and then the cheese was done. And that was it. Yeah. So salt salt the curds in the way. Don't you remove the way first or? 
Nope. nope that's why I think that's why it's called primo sale. Just salt. Yep. Interesting. You just salt the whole thing, and then and then you pour the curds into the molds. And then another one that I made um, a couple times is called uh, raviole, and that is uh, also a very fresh cheese, but not quite as fresh as, as primo sale because it would take. This is one where you'd have to watch the pH measurement closely. When it reached a certain pH, that's when you would add the rennet and let it curdle. Just a small amount of rennet because it would curdle overnight. Um, and then uh, then you'd cut the curds, once again, vertical direction only, and then use the plate to, to mm-hmm. break up the curds the rest of the way. And this time, you would use the... the um, the form the the basket itself to to pick up the curd out of the vat and then just set it down so you'd just be picking it up and then you'd let it uh, drain for I don't know maybe a half hour or so and then flip it over inside the mold which was quite a trick that I never really oh, was good right. at I saw we'll have some video of this on with the blog point so there are some, some yeah there's some there's things. some videos so there's like you have to flip it over inside this little mold and I was never good at flipping it over perfectly but they let me do it anyway. <laughs> and then you'd put a little salt. Just You'd just take a pinch of salt and just put it on there. And then another half hour later, you'd flip it again and put a pinch of salt on the other side. And that was and that was done. And so you'd put right. it into the refrigerator. And that was much more like a dry cream cheese. Really enjoyable cheese. Yeah. Okay. So I imagine, I, just in case people don't see the video, it's kind of like flipping a, a bunch of onions in a, in a saute pan or something like that. That's how you... Yeah. They, there's like a flip of the basket and then... Yeah, and everybody had a different way of doing it, and mm-hmm. I just couldn't do it well. Yeah. It would it was always come out just like twenty degrees askew. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, well, and I whenever I flip cheese, like when doing camembert at home, it's 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 hard to get it to flip. Yeah. And not catch an edge. Uh huh. So I can imagine the same thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really soft too. It's mm-hmm. kind of soft and gooey. So. Uh. But I did what I could. Yeah. Um, and um, and then the big deal there was their mozzarella. They made buffalo milk mozzarella. Yes. And so I got to be involved in that every day. And they made um, probably they would they would turn. I'm just trying to translate how many liters of milk they would use each day and turn it into mozzarella. But probably they did 80 times three. Um, Probably about 250 liters of milk they would turn into mozzarella each day. Wow! So it was a lo- there was a lot of mozzarella. Um, and I was, I'm sure that was a big seller for them. I mean, yeah, yeah, and that's one where um, I'm looking forward to posting some of the videos of that process yeah. because it's hard to describe verbally what the process was. But I have a lot of details, so I'll be posting some of the recipes yeah. on the site. Yeah, we're we're, we're planning to post a, a series of blog postings. Yeah. On on all these recipes, and so look forward to that coming up um yeah the and the videos are, are it's almost impossible to, it's amazing if you ever have made mozzarella at home and i've had uh, some difficulty making mozzarella in, in the classroom situation when i'm trying to teach people how to do it it's a tricky thing to get the get it right and not get it too rubbery uh, especially if you use a, a microwave yeah so to see these professionals you know the italians doing it professionally it's uh, they're throwing hot water around uh-huh. and using their hands to do it it uh, seems very organic and they make it look easier than yes. it is. Yeah. 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 Obviously, they have they've had a lot of experience, but it's 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 definitely fascinating to watch. Yes. Yeah. And it's short little videos, so yeah. I'll I'll get those up soon. But uh, out of the mozzarella, so they would start with the mozzarella recipe, and then there were a whole variety of things they would do with with that. So 
um, making the mozzarella all the way through to stretching, they would then form it into balls and, and small balls as well. Uh, and they were brined at different levels of salinity, the small mm-hmm. mozzarellas and the large balls okay. of mozzarella. But then they would also make uh, large sheets. And I noticed you can buy these pre-made now in the U.S. and Costco. Um, as soon as I got back, I got I'm to... sure they're made by machine, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but we got to hand-stretch these large sheets, probably two-foot-by-two-foot two sheets of mozzarella, and then they would fill it with things like uh, sun-dried tomatoes and such and roll it up meats right. and roll it up and slice it. Um, and uh, they also made burrata. And this was really a treat. Um, they would kind of make a they would take the warm mozzarella while it was still stretchable and kind of make a a cup out of it and fill it with whipped cream stretched mozzarella like strands pulled of the mozzarella if that makes any just like string cheese right so you would just break it up into string cheese and have these really fine threads of mozzarella mixed in with the cream and a little salt and you'd put that inside this cup that you just made of the fresh stretchable mozzarella and then gather up the top and squeeze it off so you'd have this ball that was stuffed with the cream threads of mozzarella and salt wow. and that was the burrata and so and this, this was the cream still liquid in the middle yeah. It's okay. So yeah. it's, so when you bought it, you'd know that you, when you cut into it or bite into it, I guess. Yeah. It, it, and it was kind of it was like a kind of a big ball, like um probably 4 inches in diameter ball. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it had that liquid center. So our <laughs> our version of the jelly-filled donut is there. So. <laughs> there uh <laughs> burrata. And uh then they would also braid it, make it into braids, which is really fun and 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 I had I had a good time trying to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um and they would also do quite a few different um, mixtures with the mozzarella. So they would also pull apart that, that mozzarella just, just like we would with string cheese, which is mozzarella, of course. So they'd pull it up, apart into these long threads. This was my job every day was to spend 45 minutes pulling mozzarella into these thin threads. Spreading it with your hands. Yeah. So I feel sorry for the person who had to take over that job mm-hmm. again after I left. But uh, they would pull it in the thin threads, mix it with uh, with cream, milk, and salt, and just sell that as uh, stracchinella. Um, and that was just something people would buy, I guess, to mix with pasta or just to have with bread. Hmm. Um, but that was a popular item. And uh, And then what else? And then... Going back to the mozzarella making, uh, sometimes they would stop before the actual stretching process and make different cheeses out of it. Um, so one cheese that I just tried making the other day is called Castle del Medico. And they wind up, uh, what they do after they finish all the preliminary steps of, of mozzarella making, they then um, let it let the curd sit out in room temperature for three days and then cut it up into little pieces, salt it, and press it with quite a bit of pressure, like 30 or 40 pounds of pressure for a couple days. And then um, and then it's ready to age for six months and it's supposed to turn out a lot like Parmesan. Yeah, it's, uh, you have it sitting here on the counter here and it looks looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. I, months, it's hard to wait six months. I that, know. That's what it's going to take to make it. <laughs> There's a lot to screw up with aging in six months. Yeah, that's true. But hopefully I can do it. So they also made another type of cheese from the same basic recipe as mozzarella, and they, it's called scamorza. And this, they actually tweaked the mozzarella recipe a little bit to make it. They used a little bit more rennet and 
they somehow let the curds... Oh, they used a little bit higher temperature, both of which results in slightly tougher curds. Right. And they would go and stretch it then. They would stretch it just like mozzarella, but it wouldn't stretch as easily or be as liquidy. It was like a wouldn't tougher... Wouldn't elastic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was like definitely tougher cheese. Still was able to stretch it, but definitely tougher. And what they would do with this is they would tie... They would form balls with it, just like they had with the mozzarella those slightly larger balls, if I remember correctly, and then tie the middle of each ball with a piece of twine. And then uh, the other end of the twine would tie another ball on the end and then would hang that twine with a ball on either end over a stick. Oh, okay. Or so it's, it, and it's in cheesecloth? Or, or, oh, no, just, it's oh, just, it's already, so it's been stretched. It's, it's so been solid. balled. Yeah. And they just tied a piece of twine around the middle of each end, on each end of this twine, and... So it kind of has the shape of a, a pumpkin, one of those peanut-shaped pumpkins. I guess kind of like peanut yeah. shape. Yeah. 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 It's kind of kind yeah. of a really with, fat peanut shape, yeah. like a squat peanut shape. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wound up because it was hanging from either end. What wound up happening is that in the end, once it uh, cooled, it would not be even on each side. It would be a kind of a small little lump on one end and a bigger lump on the lower end. Mm. Um, and this was a cheese that you could slice, and it would it kept for. A few days, um, and then to keep it even longer, they would, after a couple of days, offering it in the store. If it, if they hadn't sold some, they would smoke the rest, and it would keep for another week or two. Hmm. And uh, that was really interesting cheese. And then from that scamorza recipe, if there were uh, their balling machine, you'd always wind up with some mozzarella left in the in the machine that hadn't been formed into balls, and they would take that and. Sometimes they would braid it uh, you, with the mozzarella. They would braid it, or they would use that to form into sheets. For the scamorza, they would take that and they would put it into a, a one or two liter mold and press it with a lot of pressure. Well, no, 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 no. Back up. That was I got just got confused. They would put it in a one or two liter mold, however much extra they had, and then they would spend the day just flipping it over every once in a while in the mm. mold. Like they would take the cheese out and flip it over, and take the cheese out and flip it over. And then at the end of the day, they would just put it into um, into the aging room at about 12 degrees C and leave it there for several months. And uh, and it would turn into this cheese that was that you could uh, grill, um, a grilling cheese that wouldn't melt when grilled. It was uh, sounded really interesting. I didn't get to try it, but I saw <laughs> them make it. Interesting. Very interesting. So all those things out of a basic mozzarella recipe, and they played with all those all those different things. So tell me about the um, the cultures they use. Do they they because all the mozzarella we have here, or a lot of it, is direct acidification. And that's exactly what they use there. And I asked them about it, and they just felt like um, propagating their own cultures. There was so much risk involved in it, and a lot of labor, and they felt like it was just time and money and safety wise better choice to Did, just oh. buy the dry, freeze-dried cultures, the oh, direct, was, direct set cultures. But it, but they use cultures rather than like citric acid. like a, Typically, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's bacterial. Yeah. Yeah. And so the what did the – describe how the cheese tasted. Is it well, fresh um, and clean or has it had a lot of, a lot of free, a cheesy flavor? Most of them were fresh and clean because I described a lot of the fresh milk right. cheeses and those just tasted very fresh and clean. Mm. And then – the mozzarella was especially rich and creamy because they were using the buffalo milk, which mm-hmm. is 
rich and creamy and mm, a little bit sweeter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, really delicious. So the, for their mozzarella, they would use 90% buffalo milk and 10% cow milk. And that was just to give them the milk good properties for the um, the curd and stretching and, and all these different things. Just having 10% cow milk in there helped it a lot. Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was the, even their aged cheeses, for the most part, um, tasted pretty fresh. Not not super flavorful. But I also didn't get to try all their different types of cheeses. So, they, for example, they had a blue cheese that they made. And I have a feeling that was pretty flavorful mm-hmm. cheese. And then they also would take the, the cheese that I described earlier, the raviole, um, which was the cheese that is like cream cheese but a little drier and if that didn't sell after the first day or two they would put the extras into uh into the aging room and let those age for a few weeks and they would develop quite a bit of mold on the outside and re- get a really distinct flavor oh, interesting. Uh, which is interesting yeah That's interesting i was i was just at um steve cheese right before i came over here to, to do this recording and he was talking about some of the things they do to cheat well not cheat but when they're uh they try and rotate their stock every week or every two weeks, depending on if it's our fresh cheese or the older cheese. Mm. So what they do is, uh, is when they, when a cheese only has a few days left on it, they put it on their cheese plate. They, they put it on the recipes, you know, what they're going to put on their cheese plate for that day. Interesting. And so, that's how, and so everyone thinks he's a genius because he's, everyone's getting perfectly ripened cheese. Uh-huh. He's, just, he's just getting, you know, using up his stock that's, that needs to be used up. Interesting. That is smart. And he also talked about uh, um, he had some uh, fresh uh, a fresh cheese come in that was in cryovac, and the cryovac had broken during shipment, and so he um, ended up drying it out in a refrigerator, just the standard reaching fridge, uh, and then uh, letting a blue, a blue mold grow on it, and and so so basically doing his own finage, basically saving a cheese that he couldn't use. But then doing it, you know, adding, you know, aging it in a, in a way so that it had a lot of flavor. Interesting. Uh, they have the same similar ideas. Like yeah. Like if it doesn't sell, then, then do another right. pasta to, exactly. make it, yeah, to change it to a new cheese. Yeah, and from their mozzarella, they would they would take the mozzarella and throw it into the, before stretching it, they would they would cut it up a bit and throw it into the, the New Days batch because they would only sell their mozzarella for a day. Right. <laughs> um, and then it was, you know, they'd either throw it out or put it into the batch for the next day. Hmm. Um, and uh, yes, so would, they would had it, very short life on, on their cheeses. That's interesting. So, so when they put it back in, did they restretch it? And st- yep. Oh, they okay. would restretch it. So they would, you know, add the really hot water and st- stretch it with all the other oh, fresh okay. curd. So it just gets yeah. milled, becomes part of the big... Exactly. Mess. So they would add up to maybe maybe ten percent of the of the previous right. day's mozzarella to the to the new mozzarella. That's really interesting. Yeah, I guess and it's just economic economics at work. It's, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, they of course wouldn't want to just throw out the mozzarella cheese. They're always looking for what what else they could be doing with right. it the next day if it, for the stuff that doesn't sell. And some days they would just sell out of it completely. So there there were. You know, at least once a week, I would bet they had a day where they were just starting completely fresh. Right, right. And the other interesting thing they were very adamant about was how to store your mozzarella. Okay. And they said never refrigerate it, which is one of the reasons why you have to use it quickly, I suppose. But mm. they um, they were pretty adamant. That's how they it gets a, an, a skin that you really don't want on it. 
So they would put it in the brine and have it in a bag for you to buy and would insist that you not put it in the refrigerator but just keep it at room temperature until eaten. Right. So and I'm sure you, it would... I mean, how often would a... How long would a Italian family keep that on their counter? Probably just three days. Yeah. Yeah. No but more Three days, that. but more than one day. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Yep. So they would buy it. When purchasing it, it would be no more than one day old. And usually... Well, the the cheese was usually made that very morning, um, and so if you came in if you came in at around noon, you'd be getting cheese that was an hour old. Right. And then by the end of the day, you know, it was just a, a few hours old. And then by the next morning, they were already starting the next batch. Right, and mixing it in or yep. yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome. So, what other cheeses did you make at the second cheese factory? There was one called Blue Dadon, and it was the one other hard cheese that I got to make while I was there. And it was a blue cheese. Um, and one of the things that I haven't seen in any other blue cheese recipe that they did with their blue cheese was adding baker's yeast to at the same time as when they added the starter culture. And, and that would just provide even more air pockets, essentially, for the, uh, the Penicillium roqueforti to grow the blue mold in. Mm-hmm. So, so their process was to heat the milk to about 37 degrees and then add the um, add their starter culture and some of the baker's yeast, and then uh, they would let the you know add the rennet a little bit later, form the curd, let the curd drain on some draining boards, and then they would slice it up into these quarter inch sheets, I guess, of yeah. curd, and then layer in the mold first one direction and then and then the other direction, just layers and layers, which created a lot of good air pockets. Um, right, and then they would. Um, they would just let it, then they'd flip the whole thing upside down and let it sit for three days out at room temperature and then refrigerate it for 10 days, at which point they would poke the holes, you know, use a, a needle the, to poke yeah. holes through one side, and then they'd wait another 10 days and poke needles into the other side and um, and then finish aging it. Um, so it was an interesting process for making the blue cheese, and I got to put it into the molds and everything. So it was a good experience. Right. And uh, when they left it out for three days, was it covered in the molds? or was yeah, it? Yeah, it was in... Uh, the, the type of cheesecloth that they often use in the factories is not cloth, but more of a, a plastic fabric that has the same holes as cheesecloth. Okay. Um, it's this reusable stuff. Um, so they use that. This is essentially cheesecloth. A home cheesemaker would use cheesecloth okay. for that purpose. Yeah. And uh, so it was enclosed in the cheesecloth, so you could flip it upside down and right side up. Yeah, that that first blue cheese I made kind of followed the same process. Probably, out of, I mean, I followed Ricky Carroll's Stilton recipe, but I kind of made a mistake and ended up making a bunch of cubes and then of of the solid curd and then throwing them together in, mold, in the mold and it left a lot of air pockets in it, which really made nice places for the for the mold to grow. Mm. And it sounds like, well, that sounds exactly like what I yeah. did and it, 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 turned, it's, it ends up I found it made the cheese a lot drier so it's not like that creamy blue cheese so I thought it was really interesting to see that cheese uh, something similar being done in, yeah. in commercially we'll see I'm tr- I'm making it today so we'll see how it turns I out I'm, I'm, I, I, I have high hopes yes me too <laughs> and there's also yogurt you made there right yes the um, they made two different types of yogurt one was an all buffalo milk creamy, very thick yogurt. It was so thick that you could take a spoon of it and turn the spoon upside down and it would just stick to the spoon. Wow. It was just the most amazing stuff. 
And he did that. He used um, a pretty typical, the, the same starter that you'd use for a Greek yogurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he would leave it for 12 hours at 36 degrees. And for 12 hours straight at, at almost exactly 36 degrees, and it would just get that consistency. He'd bring the temperature down after that and mix in whatever flavors he wanted to mix in. But that, that was his secret, was to just keep it constant 36 degrees for um, for 12 hours. Right, and this is in a, a water bath, right? Or, or well, how he, had a, he had a... Commercial, a commercial machine okay, right. for being able to keep it at that temperature. So th- that's the trick. I've tried to do it in a thermos container, but being able to ach- to have it at thirty six degrees because you're using a thermophilic culture to do it. Right. That, that a Greek yogurt or any yogurt is made with a thermophilic culture, and thirty six degrees is definitely on the low end of right. what it can multiply at. So you have to get it up to at least thirty six and keep it there, and not a lot higher but I think the next batch I do I might bring it up a little higher maybe it won't be as perfect as his but mine spent too much time below 36 and didn't coagulate properly so right yeah. and I was just doing it in a thermos in a water bath like a like a big orange thermos container mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah I, I've been playing around with uh, making yogurt with a, a heating pad that's on a mm. dimming switch mm-hmm. so you it doesn't it's not automatic but you have to you have to keep adjusting the heating pad till it's just the right heat putting up just the right heat um there's these sous vide machines I've, i i don't know if i've talked to you about that it's a, a way of um uh it's a cooking method but it, it basically it can uh, turn on and off a, a, a heating pad or a heater uh as temperature changes and they have a very accurate hmm. give something out of a water bath at a very accurate temperature as low as, as i low wonder as. if you could use the same devices that Brewers and cheesemakers use to keep their refrigerator at a higher yeah. temperature than normal. If you could, if you had an enclosed space, if you could do the same, you, be, you basically need the with same thing. Heating so blanket. You, you need yeah. to do, be heating instead of cooling. Yeah. So you have to have the thermostat mm. working the opposite direction. But yes, something like that. Yeah. So huh. cool. Yeah. So so he had so the two types of yogurts that he had were the the buffalo milk thick yogurt, and then he mm. did an all cow's milk. Uh, drinkable yogurt and um, oh, and like this was more of a sweet yogurt yeah. yeah it wasn't kefir it was still yogurt yeah. and um, I'm not remembering the exact cultures that he used at this time another right. thing I'll post on the the blog you, kept, um, you take you took really good notes I took really <laughs> good notes and and recorded all the recipes and have transcribed them and tried to reduce them by about ten times uh, right because everything was done with about a hundred to one hundred fifty liters of milk <laughs> right right. It's always fun to translate those big recipes yes. to home. Yeah. That's, One but, other really interesting thing about the factory was how much, well, how little time the milk spent in the jacketed vats with the controlled temperature. Hmm. As soon as they were done adding the starter culture, and typically before they would add the rennet, they would transfer almost all the the milk for the cheeses they were making into plastic vats, mm-hmm. and just the factory was fairly warm probably was a constant you know somewhere between 75 and 70 well probably around 75 degrees warm, Fahrenheit. Temperature, it was yeah. pretty warm and yeah. humid in there but almost everything they would transfer to these plastic buckets and just have it sit in there as it did its renting and they would just assume it would stay warm enough for for the rest of the yeah so they didn't do anything where they're heating the the curds no not at all interesting yeah it was pretty interesting but yeah because they didn't do any recipes where they heated the curds everything was done in the plastic vats all all the recipes that i've mentioned so far uh, with the exception of the yogurt right yeah 
So, Debbie, one thing I've really noticed since you've come back is that you're in love with ricotta. Oh, love probably doesn't even do it justice. (laughs) When both places I stayed made ricotta with all of the whey, like they would collect as much of the whey from all their cheese making as possible and and make ricotta with it. And... um, the sheep milk ricotta was good, but I'm not I'm not a, the biggest fan of sheep milk cheeses in general. The sheepy taste kind of gets to me. But at the second place, when they made almost most of the whey was from buffalo milk, and they would make buffalo milk ricotta, it was I can't even describe how wonderful that experience is of eating ricotta. I would just take the basket like a you know probably two cups of ricotta in a in a basket, and I would just eat it straight up, just like eat the whole basket just sitting there. And even better was when there was honey available to drizzle over it mm-hmm. and eat with the ricotta. So, what was what was your favorite characteristic? I mean, was it was very light? Was yeah, it was just creamy. so creamy, and I don't even know how to describe it. It was it was creamy and light and fluffy, delicate. Not, yeah, kind not of delicate. S- okay, just a really not too rich, but just a really nice flavor, not tart. Not grainy at all. Not anything like we get in the supermarket here. What I'm thinking, yeah. Or even a even a high end high end brand at a nice fancy supermarket is nothing like it to have fresh ricotta, mm-hmm. and to be able to eat it just a couple hours old and it's just it's so good. I so think most good. ricotta we have here is made from whole milk because mm. I think to get the yield up higher. I'm not sure it's about true. that. Yeah, and they use they were making 100 percent whey ricotta. Right. Which has really different properties, I think. It's got to have a lot less with different protein in it, and it's yeah. it's it's not gonna. You only get a, a, a very small amount of cheese out of out of a lot of whey. Right, it's so. true, and they had gallons and gallons and gallons right. of whey to start with, so they were able to make quite a bit of ricotta each day. Um, but it was definitely a high demand item there too. And mm. just if you ever go to Italy, definitely try it and. Mm. Whenever making hard cheese here, even I'm now a complete convert. I used to think that making ricotta was not really worth it because the yield was so low. But now I prize every last little bit of it that I'm able to coax out of the way. Are <laughs> your leftover way? Well, yep. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> I think there's a lot of proponents of of using all the way that we throw away in cheese making. I, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's. There's a problem with getting that to market quickly enough to, to make it economical. It's true, because since I've been back, I've asked several cheesemakers why they don't produce ricotta. And they each have different reasons, but a lot of it has to do with, well, you have to make it so quickly afterward, because you do have to use it like right away to mm-hmm. make good ricotta. And I guess there's, there's cost some of with the market. That, yeah, yeah, it just takes extra time, and I don't think it's a big money-making proposition for them, but... Oh, what an opportunity, at least with me. I would buy all of it and eat it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Good stuff. I, there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of economics behind that I problem. I suppose so. But, but uh, as home cheesemakers, we can make as much as we want from all our leftover way. Well, that's great. That sounds like a wonderful trip. What a great way to spend your sabbatical. Oh, I can't <laughs> recommend it enough. Even just volunteering and staying with a family, that, that in itself was just one of the best travel experiences yeah. I've ever had. Yeah. Well, well, we'll put the links up to those sites, that, that the Wolf site and the other one, yep. up, on, up on our podcast notes. And uh, I think that's that's about it for this show. I really thank you for, for, for telling us your story. Oh, well, thanks for having me and thanks for listening. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see everyone next time. 
Thanks for listening to the Joy of Home Cheesemaking podcast. Our website is joyofcheesemaking.com and our email is podcast at joyofcheesemaking.com. Now go home and make some cheese.